this shear is addressing really one aspect of Hanukkah, which I, I think is tremendously profound. It's, it, 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 we're going to unpack an idea which is described by Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz was um, the Rosh Hashiva in the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. <coughs> he was born in Europe, the turn of, in Stuttgart in Poland, in the, um, on the turn of the century. And he, um, he moved through um, Shanghai into Israel and became the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir. A phenomenal individual with great insight into Ju- Judaism and psychology, the perspective, perspective on us. So what we're going to do is we're going to investigate an idea which actually links the parashiot we are doing right now and also Hanukkah itself. So we're on Hanukkah right now, but Hanukkah most often falls between the sections in the Torah of Vayeshev and Mikates. Those, that's usually the two, the two parts of the story. that We have always Mikates, sometimes also Vayeshev. And um, let's try to link those two stories. So here's, here's how it goes. Let's try to, um, to, to, to separate this individually. We're told the following, that when Yosef is being sold into slavery by his own breth- brothers, we're told an, there's an interesting detail in the story which is oven, uh, often overlooked. Um, here's how it goes. In this first source, we're told, by So the brothers are s- sitting to eat their bread. And they notice that there is a caravan of camels coming from Gilad. That's from East Bank Jordan. They're sitting on the West Bank Jordan, Israel. So I see an Arab caravan approaching them. And their camels are bearing all these different types of spices. And they're going down to Egypt. And to appreciate the natural flow of things in these days, we are in the center of the Fertile Crescent. Israel is always the crossroads of civilization because it is really the fertile area which links the north and Egypt in the south. So it would be the natural pathway, causeway for people to go through. People would not move across the desert to the east. They would go from the top down, down to the south to Egypt and back up to the north. So this is what this (laughs) caravan is doing. And they are spice traders. And this is when the, 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 the idea is given that rather than, as Yehuda says, rather than killing him or leaving him in this pit, let's just sell him. And they sell him literally down the river. And that's, and, and that's, that's how Yosef ends up in Mitzrayim. Um, Rashi tells us that there is a detail in the story which we may overlook, but is actually significant. Rashi, Rashi is, quotes a Medrash, which says in the, in the source 2, Gemalehem Nosim, Loma Pirsem Hakosov Esmasa'om. Why do we need to know what they were carrying? Whether they were carrying, you know, um, perfume, whether they were carrying blocks, whether they were carrying rope, whether they were carrying wood, it doesn't make a difference to us in the bigger context of things. Lohidia, um, you know, it reminds me of Lahavdil, just to stop for a moment. You know, I used to be an avid reader of Calvin and Hobbes. And, uh, well, I said, well, before the answer, just, just to be sure, I remember there was one history test that he was reading, and, uh, and, and the history test what, it says, what was the significance? Of the, ba- of, of the battle of such and such bridge. So he writes, in the answer to teacher, he says, he says, on a universal scale, very little. And he says, we big picture people rarely become historians. So like, you know, so like, the, the, you know, the, the, Torah, the, the Torah is obviously conveying to us, Lahavdil, details which are significant to us. So the Torah is telling us about a detail about why it is, then they must be significant. So as Barbara was alluding to in a, a second ago, Rashi says, quoting the Medrash, Lohidiyah matana skoran shol tzadikim, to tell us the reward that Sadiqim have, Usually, 
um, the Arab traders in those days, and apparently things haven't changed too much, um, <laughs> is that they, is that, is that they, they, they carry um, things like tar, pitch, or paraffin, so some sort of fuels which are used, and they, they smell rather bad. And it happened to be that the caravan that Yosef got a hitch on was a perfume-smelling caravan. So Yosef was therefore got this sort of uh, almost this micro miracle, this experience that uh, an a, a anomaly from the regular trade of Arabs, and this is why he got a sweet-smelling journey down. And it just makes so little sense. First of all, never mind the fact that it's an insignificant detail; it is also almost a it is almost a mockery, you know. You think about it, you know, his whole, his whole experience, his whole history, his whole context for existence is being pulled from under his feet in one move. His father, who seems to have cared for him, his brothers, who, who are supposed to be his support system, whatever happens, whatever the reasoning is, they're selling him, they, they, they're, they're getting rid of him. He's essentially losing everything of his life, everything that's meant anything to him is going away. And it smells good while that's happening. So, like... That does, you know, there's a, there's a book written which was, which was, uh, uh, which was later created into a movie called um, The Count of Monte Cristo. It's about an individual young man who's betrayed by his best friend. And when he's betrayed, he's sent to this island, the Isle of Monte Cristo, as, um, as a prisoner with, with no, no end, for crimes he never committed. And, there, there, and there's, there's a moment where he's being put into this iron carriage, being ta taken away, and... Um, and, you know, and basically, it's a, it's a dead end for the, his entire life ahead, ostensibly. Now, imagine, you know, as, as if, okay, so if the carriage was white, you know, if they had plush seats in the carriage, would that really make a difference in, a, a, as he goes towards this, uh, this forsaken existence? It doesn't make a difference what the smell was, right? So, uh, not only is the, the, this detail insignificant, it's making a mockery of whole, his whole experience over here because is he really going to notice that? This is what he's going to really notice at this point in time? Question, just that, that's the basic question. That's, that's, that's starting on the parasha. So what we're going to do is like this. Is rather than focusing on Vayeshev, <coughs> we're going to take a little bit of a detour and the detour is going to enter into um, a, a very different history. This is, this is such a remarkable history because we do this all the time and we have very little idea as to the background of this. And that is, let's say, we're going to take a detour into Berkas Amazon. Um, the, the, which is the blessing we say after eating a full meal, including bread. Um, this, is, this, is, this is one of the two um, brachos which the Torah mandates. The Torah says, you have to do this. When you eat, when you're satiated, you shall bless. That's why we quote that pasuk in benching. Um, and we, uh, we, we said the blessing after, uh, after bread. How many brachos are there when, when we say berkas amazon? How many brachos do we say, actually? It's not one bracha. So you, when, I, when I ask my kids this, what they do is they count the paragraphs. That's not the right way to do it. The, the, the rule is, the rule is, is that a bracha always ends with Baruch HaTah Hashem. It doesn't always begin with Baruch HaTah Hashem, but it always ends with Baruch HaTah Hashem. So if you go through the Berkas HaMazon, you'll notice that the end of the first paragraph is Baruch HaTah Hashem, Hazan Esakol, right? Hashem sustains everything. Then you do two paragraphs, and it ends with Baruch Hashem, that's number two. Then you, go, then, then, there's a, then you keep going, and that ends with, that's three. Now, interestingly enough, 
um, th those three, Berakas Mazen was actually really only three brachas for many, many, many years, for many centuries. And later on, there was a fourth bracha which was added on. So let's go a little bit into the history of this. It wasn't as if this just happened at once. It was a historical development as to how and how and why we say the brachas of Berakas Mazen. So the Gemara addresses this in, in the third source, in, in brachas on Daf Memeches Mabez. The Gemara tells us... <coughs> And each of these brachas represents a discrete event in Jewish history. So we can, we can, we can address it. The Gemara tells us, this is such a remarkable Gemara, it gives such context. The Gemara says, Amar Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman would say, Moshe tikein le Yisrael birkas hazad. The first blessing was instituted by none other than Moshe himself. Veshashi yorad lahem man. At the time that, the manna descended from the sky. Can you imagine this? Here you have a whole nation of Israel, 600,000 men ostensibly 3.2 million people living in a desert for 40 years. Where in the world do you get enough uh, to sustain them? And they're Jews, right? I mean, it's not as if, it's not as if you're going to get away with anything, right? So what do you, how, do you, how do you get a deal with this? So HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a nace that every single day, six days a week, there is manna falling from the heavens. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, folks, the way we need to deal with this is, how do we respond to this? We say a bracha every time you eat, Hazan, Baruch Atah Hashem, Hazan Esolam Kuloi B'Tuvai, Hashem sustains the world with His goodness. B'chein V'chesed V'rachem, with graciousness and kindness and mercy. What are they talking about? They're talking about what they see every morning, when they see that they walk outside their doors and they see that they're literally sustained from heaven. Baruch Atah Hashem, Hazan Esakol, you sustain everything. So their experience has been translated into a bracha, and that bracha we say. Now, it happens to be that you have to do a little more walking and working to get that manna these days, right? There's a lot more of our involvement in it, but it's the same principle. This principle is, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us the facilities to be able to put food on the plate, and we thank you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for that opportunity. That's, that's number one, and we're patterning that after 40 years in the desert, where their food was literally and expressly given from heaven. But the Gemara continues. That was the bracha number one. And for 40 years, that's how they would say it. That's how they would, they would bless Hashem upon eating. Then the Gemara says, The second blessing was instituted by Yoshua, Joshua, Moshe Rabbeinu's, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu's um, <coughs> student, disciple, and, and, and ultimately successor. And Yoshua now introduces a new bracha because it's no longer the manna, the, man, or the manna which is falling from heaven. Now we're entering into the land of Israel. And how do we get food? Well, you plow and you sow and you water and you guard and you reap and you gather and all that business. And once you get to the end of that story, now you have something in the granary. So, HaGadosh Baruch thank you for giving us the wherewithal to be able to produce, to cultivate the food that we need to put onto our plates. So this is ultimately, the, now in, in a certain sense, the complexity of the thanking has, in, has increased because there's more steps along the way. There's more of a process in order to get that food from where, where, where it comes from to our, to, to our, to our plates. And therefore, the, when we look at that bracha, it's Thank you for this great land that you gave to, you bequeathed to our forefathers. When it goes on land, 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 it does mention Bris Miller because that's what Yoshua also did in order to get into the land, interestingly enough. <coughs> We conclude that bracha, bracha to Hashem, um, on the land and the food. Because now it's not just land, but it's food. No, it's not just food, but it's land as well. So we've sequentially moved on into history, into the next stage of our existence, where we have context for that food as well. And finally, the third bracha, um, uh, the, the Gemara argues, is, David u Shlomo tiknu bonei Yerushalayim. 
David and Shlomo instituted the third bracha of building Jerusalem. David Tikein al Yisrael Amchov al Yerushalayim Irecha. The first part of the bracha is by David Amelech, which is about the about the, the area of Yerushalayim. Shlomo Tikein al Abayis Hagadol Vakadosh and Shlomo instituted building the great house, which refers, of course, to the Beis Hamikdash. Right. So if you think about this, now we've moved on. Actually, this is already almost four hundred years later. So up to now, they've, uh, for, for 40 years, they had one bracha. Then for another 400 years after that, they had essentially two brachas. And then as David Melech unifies all of Israel under one monarchy, conquers Jerusalem for the first time, as we read in Shmuel Beis, and we just learned about literally two weeks ago. At that point in time, David Melech instituted a third bracha, which is about Al Yerushalayim Yerecha, on Yerushalayim, your city. And he wished to will to aspire to make a Beis HaMikdash, was not able to, but that got given to his son Shlomo Melech. Shlomo Melech makes Yerushalayim. They conclude the third bracha, Now it must have been a little different because, you know, our bracha is actually a request to build Yerushalayim. Shlomo must have been saying a bracha about having built Yerushalayim. But nonetheless, this seems to be the, the, the sequence. So the has, has told us that when we are so all, all we've done is just had our bagel for breakfast. And we're essentially, you know, locating ourselves in the great, you know, the great chain of history um, of, the, of, of Judaism. This is, this is what it means to be Jewish. You know, all you're trying to do is eat at the bris and you're, and you're, and you're talking about your, your identity and your, your legacy. Uh, so, but that, 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 that's part of how Judaism is supposed to work if we were, if we were dropping into the consciousness of what, what's, what's going on. That's the, that's the history of Berkha Samozan. So it really is three blessings. Which is why, if you look carefully in the Siddur, when we say ala mechia, let's say we eat, you know, a, 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 you know something which is mezonas, so we eat a, a cookie, a muffin, and we a lasagna, we say ala mechia ala afterwards. If you look at the label of that bracha, is anyone familiar with what that bracha is actually called? It's not just called ala mechia, it's called birkas. Anyone familiar? If you look in the Siddur, in the art scroll, they always have a, a koteret, which is like a title. It's called birkas me'ain shalosh. Me'ain means the, uh, um, sort of as if or a summary of Me'ain Shalosh, a summary of three. Three watts. Three or three brachas in Berkaz Amazon, because that's what Berkaz Amazon was. It was three blessings. So the Me'ain Shalosh is, in a certain sense, a contraction of those three brachas, which is why, if you look at the subject of the bracha of Alamichia, it is talking about food, land, and Jerusalem. Right, because it contracts those three concepts into one, and that's and, and that's the, the the expression of that on a we'll call it a more micro level than the macro of Birkas Hamazon. So that's that's that, that's the context of Birkas Hamazon. Truth be told, we have a fourth bracha, <coughs> and that is is after that we say Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam Hakelavin Hakadirene Barene Galene Yotzerene Kedusha Ene Kedusha Yakov Rene Rei Yisrael Melech Atov Meitzel Lakosh Bechol Yom Vayom Right? Who hates you? Who hates you? Who hates you? Vlonok. So we talk about Hakadosh Baruch Hu, you're so great, and you're always doing good for us. You're benevolent to us. That's the fourth bracha of Berakas Hamazon, which ends with Al Yechasreinu. Most people aren't aware of that. If you look in some benches, I'll have a little Amen in parentheses after that bracha. Which, if there's a zimun which is being done, then people will wait for that point in time to say the Amen after that bracha. And if somebody's benching on a cup, they'll actually put down the cup after that because that's the end of the four brachas, the Berakas Hamazon. And from then on, is our supplications. The Harachamans are saying, please Hashem this, please Hashem that. Um, but that's, the, that's the, really the, the supplications. The actual bracha has ended at Yechastreinu. And in some Nusrahis, some people actually stop benching there. Very, very, it's not, not so common. But some people stop saying at Yechastreinu, not on, on Shabbos, not to add supplications. Just interesting, just the context of it, we should actually should put it in the, in the, in the package just to see it, see it in front of us. But in our mind's eye, this is what's happening. Where did this fourth bracha come from? And that's where our story begins. 
because the fourth bracha comes from a very unusual episode in history. The Gemara tells us not in brachas. The Gemara tells us in Baba Basra on Tov Kuf Chof Aleph on the base. This is a Gemara talking about the context of Tuba'av. Why does we celebrate Tuba'av? This, this event occurs on Tuba'av. Here we go. Rav Masna Omar, Yom Shinitnu Harugei Beitar Likvura. Tuba'av, the 15th of Av, was the day that the murdered of Beitar were allowed to be buried. Dama Rav Masna, Oiso Hayom Shinitnu Harugei Beitar Likvura, Tiknu Biyavne Hatoiv Vahametev. In Yavne, which was the seat of power following when Yerushalayim was de- uh, unseated by the Romans, so Yavne was where the Sanhedrin sat. They made a takon, they made an institution that we should start saying a fourth bracha in the Birka Samozan called Hatoiv, Vahametiv, Hashem who is good. That's what they who hatev, who mativ, who yativ, lonu. That's the, that's the, that's the cord of, that, of, the, of, this, of this bracha. Why? Hatoiv, the, uh, we call Hashem good in this respect, Shaloy Estrichu, because there was no decomposition that occurred to the bodies they found. And, the, and Hashem is good to us, does, does, projects good to us, that they were given to be buried, they were allowed to be buried. So this is the, the history of the fourth bracha. It was an episode that occurred after the massacre of Betar, which allowed us to, when we were really allowed to bury the dead. So just context, what's, what's going on over here? We can visit Betar today. There's a very, very, very nice community called Beitar, Beitari Lit. You can go visit. It's a beautiful community. Very, it's a very Haredi community. There's a lot of, a lot of Torah learning learned there, um, and there's, there's a lot of products that come from there as well. Um, so when we, when this, that is a, that, that is today is, is a new, is a new um, um, yeshuv of the what, what used to be. Here's how it worked in the year 70 Common Era. So 2000, just short, shy of 2,000 years ago. Was the, the, it was the completion of the rebellion of the Jews against the Romans, and the Romans ended it pretty decisively by destroying the Beis HaMikdash. So the second temple was, was destroyed, burned to the ground, on, the, on Tisha B'Av of the year 70 Common Era. So that's, that, that, that's when it ended. But it, truth be told, that wasn't really the end of the Jewish sovereignty and presence in the land of Israel, because many Jews were allowed to carry on living in the area of Judea, which was now a Roman mandate. It was an area under the Roman control <coughs> with Roman governors. The issue is, is that progressively over the following 60 years, going, leading into the, into, the, into the second century to the, around the year 130, there were progressively more restrictions on um, religious behavior. So the Jews were not allowed, to, uh, certainly under the, the new Caesar, on the, um, after the turn of the century, his name was Hadrian. There, there was what was called the Hadrianic persecutions, um, which, were, which were a series of, of uh, regulations as to how we could or could not practice Judaism. And, um, in fact, around this time is when he decided that Jerusalem would be just the right place to construct his temple, his temple to Jupiter. Right? Jupiter is one of the Roman gods. That's why the planet's named after him. And, uh, and, uh, and that was, did not go well down, down so well with the Jews also with the, the taxation, also with the decrees on religious observance, which is why one of the most powerful rebellions in Jewish history was launched against the Roman Empire, and that was under the auspices of Shimon Bar Kochba. So this is, this is an individual who is an extremely powerful person. Um, and for, for those who've been to Israel and you've visited, you can you can you can go in you can go into the tunnels of where the the, the Bar Kokhba rebellion went, and it's very hard to get into. There are very thin narrow entrances because the Romans were not able to enter with their armor. And you can go into the, into in your and you can visit the areas that where they were controlled by the Bar Kokhba garrisons. Um, and 
and they were, it was actually very successful. So the Rambam describes that he was such a powerful luminary um, that Rabbi Akiva, who was his religious colleague, believed that Bar Kokhba was Mashiach. That's, that's how, how powerful he really believed this could be the moment. And was it successful? Absolutely. They reprised the Roman Empire from Jerusalem for the span of two and a half, three years. In fact, today, if you go to the, 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 the Temple Sifting Project, you can see the coins they found minted in Yerushalayim for those years, in the years 130 to 133, you can see the coins minted with the Bar Kokhba's head on it. Meaning when they regained control of Yerushalayim, they started the new mint, the new cycle of, coin, uh, of coinage from, from, from that time. It's remarkable because the Roman Empire was not to be messed with and ultimately they were not to be messed with. And so they, they sent in and they sent in two legions, and I mean the Romans at this point in time controlled from northern England down to Egypt. You know, we're talking the, the span of, of the known world at this point in time. And they did not take this lightly, and they sent in their legions, and they crushed everything. They crushed the, the, the rebellion cru very cruelly. In fact, just to, he has, he, has, he has the words of Cassius Dio, who is one of the Roman historians of the time. This is his description of this. This is a, a footnote, really, because he is describing the great Roman Empire. This is one piece of it. He says, Then indeed Hadrian sent against them his best generals. First there was Julius Severus, who was dispatched from Britain, where he was governor against the Jews. Severus did not venture to attack his opponents in the open at any point, in view of the numbers and, and their desperation, but by intercepting small groups. Thanks to the number of his soldiers and, and his under-officers, by depriving them of food and shutting them up, he was able rather slowly to be sure, but with comparatively little danger, to crush, exhaust, and exterminate them. Very few of them, in fact, survived. Fifty of the most important outposts and 985 of their most famous villages were razed to the ground. 985 villages, that's a, that's a colossal number. That's a, just think about the amount of Yishuvim that we are cultivating today. The, the numbers are, are, are astronomical um, when it talks about this destruction. And 580,000 men were slain in the various raids and battles, and the number of those who had perished by famine, disease, and fire was past finding out. So he's talking about this is, this, is, this is much worse than what happened during the destruction of the Second Temple, because the Romans were ruthless at this point in time. They didn't want anything left. Thus, the, nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate, and as a result of which... The, the people had had forewarning before the war that before the tomb of Solomon, which the Jews regard as an object of veneration, fell to pieces of itself and collapsed, and many walls and hyenas rushed howling into their cities. And just to add a few extra details, just for interesting historical points, and that is this is when Jerusalem was renamed Elina Capitolina. Elina was after Hadrian, it was his middle name. Very arrogant fellow. Okay, so he, uh, he was Hadrian Elinus, so he called Jerusalem after his own name. He, made, he, he raised it to the ground and forbade access of any Jews to the city of Jerusalem at this point in time, in the early 100s. And um, um, also, this is when this area became known as Palestina. What happened was, as, uh, what some of the historians argue, is that they wanted to give it a name that would disassociate the national drive to regain its control. So they chose, a, they chose the name of one of the perennial enemies of the nation of Israel, which was through all of the Bible was the Philistines. So they chose the name Palestina, not because it was a state run by any people we know today, not because there was any governing party or a national, national entity, coinage, flag, language, culture. 
It was just simply the Romans named this part of their empire Palestina so that we, as the Jews, who are the natural natives of this land, should have a disconnection, a national disconnection to, the, to this territory. That was just, which, they're pretty successful, if you think about it, right? Till today, this is why, if you listen to Palestinian narratives, they will say, Palestine has always been a country which we took away. No, 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 it never was a country. It was a Roman mandate where the Jews were trying, they were trying to force the Jews out of, and they called it Palestine. They weren't Muslims at this point in time. Islam had not been invented for another 700 years, 632 years. Okay, so it's, it's, it, 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 but this is where it started from, okay, um, was, was, was the, 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 the Hadrianic persecutions. Now, <clears throat> the last bastion, the last outpost in this rebellion against the Romans was a place called Betar. Betar was the bastion, and upon its conquest, when the Romans did finally vanquish the rebellion, and they did destroy it, and um, th that was essentially the last time Jews actually ever operated in a sovereign manner over the land of Israel till the year 1948. That was the last time for almost for the span of 1900 years that there was never Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. It was always under the governance of another nation. There were 14 different empires that controlled Jerusalem and controlled Israel and, uh, and, uh, and, and the Jews were not among them for, 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 the, for this next period of time. So. That's a pretty severe conquest. And it's at this point in time that, um, that Betar, in fact, when they destroyed Betar, they massacred everybody. The Gomorrah says in Babasra that the blood flowed to the sea. Now, Betar is a very far away from the sea, and it's probably hyperbole. It's probably an exaggeration, but we, we get the point. The point is that this was, they, 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 they had no mercy. There was no quarter given, and everybody was killed. After this, they didn't even allow the, the burial of the bodies because they, they wanted to make a statement about what happens when you rebel against the Roman Empire. And for many months, the bodies weren't given access to burial until uh, a little while uh, later on Tuba'av. On Tuba'av was, uh, was when they allowed the bodies to be reburied. Um, now, if you think about that for a second, um, I believe, I'm trying to, try to remember, that I think Betar was conquered on either Tishbab or Yudhizayim Batamos, right? So I'm trying to remember which one, which it's one of the five causes of, of one of the two. But be it as it may, it's a full year later. Okay, so we're talking about an entire year later, when they came, when they were allowed access to bury the, the dead, they found that there was no decomposition which had occurred. And because of that, the Chazal said, we're going to institute the fourth bracha, Birkas HaMazan, HaTov, Shelo Yisrichu, the Hashem is good because they didn't, uh, they didn't decompose, the Ametiv, Shenitnu Lukvur, that they were allowed to be buried. That's why we have the fourth, uh, the fourth bracha, Birkas HaMazan, which is markedly different to the first three, right? The three were Thanksgiving about sustenance. This seems to be much more geared towards, a, it's actually very strange if you think about it, because there were many points of light in Jewish history which we could have drawn more attention to than this. This seems a little obscure. And in fact, not only does it seem obscure, it seems a little, it seems a little cruel again, right? Meaning, you know, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, they, the, the bodies didn't rot. That, that, that is very unusual. That's highly unusual, in fact. And the fact that they were allowed to bury them is, is, is very meaningful. But in the greater context of things, that this was the end. This is it. We were basically, this is, Godless has started for, for real now. Exile is in full motion after this. And and we're, we're celebrating the fact that we, you know, we could bury our dead after a massacre. That's, 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 that's why we need the fourth bracha in Berkas Amazon. But if you notice, actually, it's interesting that this is almost the same model as Yosef on a macro scale. Let's just go back to the, to, to the starting point. So logically speaking, Yosef is being strapped to the bottom of a camel, being taken down to Egypt and being dis dis disassociated with his family. And it smells good, right? 
So here we have the same sort of model. Here we have Israel, who's being sent into a, a almost two millennia worth of exile. And as they're going in, don't worry, there's a little something, right? There's a little something on So just in terms of logical parallel, this is clearly a, um, a, the same image over here. So what Rav Chaim Shalevitz argues is, this is such a powerful idea. He calls this, he calls a, this the unnecessary nace, the unnecessary miracle, which he calls the neshika, which is the kiss. Which means like this. It's specifically because it wasn't necessary. Specifically because Yosef going to Egypt did not need to have this inconsequential piece of information or experience that it smelled good as he was being cha- taken down in chains. That's what told him that it wasn't utter rejection. If it was utter rejection, then you know what? He would have, he would have ended up you know, next to the, 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 the paraffin tank on, on the camel, like every other caravan of Arabs. But this was highly unusual, and he happens to be sitting in this most pleasant-smelling aroma as he's being taken down. And as he's sitting there brooding about his history, his identity, and his future, he says, you know what? Maybe, maybe there was a reason. Maybe, maybe I'm not rejected fully. Maybe this little, so last little spark, this unnatural, this, this, this quiet miracle, this kiss, is Akash Baruch telling me that all the time that I'm going to be in this terrible place, Akash Baruch is saying, I, I, it's not because of rejection, it's because of a crucible. I'm, 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 there's something you need to do in this. There's something you need to accomplish through this experience, but it's not rejection. It's not being kicked out. Similarly with the Jews. The Jews are about to experience the longest lasting exile in, the, in not just in Jewish history, but I would argue in any nation's history. There's been no other nation which has gone through exile and still talks and still has a share on Wednesday nights about itself and its, its values. It just doesn't exist, right? Any nation has become assimilated within a few generations and is gone. Right? Where are the Greeks today? And like, think about any of these nations. They, they're gone. They're finished. So this longest l- lasting exile in all of human history is about to begin. And Akash Baruch wants us to make sure that we don't adopt Christian theology. Christian theology says that we were rejected. And the case looks pretty good, right? We have been kicked out of our land. We've lost our sovereignty. We don't have a nationhood. We've been essentially the pariah of every single state in the known world. And nonetheless, we, we, st- we still exist. So Akash Baruch says, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I don't want you to think that you're rejected from me. I want you to know I'm going to give you an unnecessary miracle. It's almost like a point of light as you go into that Golos, to know that I'm still with you, even though you're going to go through all the travails and the troughs of this, of this terrible experience. Know that I'm here. It's the last send-off to remind us. So what Chazal did was they said, this is so important to remember, that every time you eat a meal, you need to remember this. Every time you, you have a meal, you need to say, who did good, does good, and will do good with us. Why? Because we need to remember that Golis is, no, is not the, the be-all and end-all. We've not been rejected. We've not been the downtrodden brother. We are it. We're still like Kodesh Baruch Hu. It's just there's, a, there's, there's something we need to be achieving through this process because of something that happened in the past and something we need to fix in the, the present, which is going to allow us to get to the end point, which is ultimately, which is bringing Kodesh Baruch Hu expressly back into this world. That, that's, that, that, that's the mission, and we remember it every time we eat. This is, the, this is the, the, the function of this, which is a very fascinating and very different way of looking at, um, at this. So, Racham Shlava takes it one step further. So, let's, let's push this into, into Hanukkah now. So, it's interesting, because when you look at the Hanukkah story, you know, the reason why we celebrate Hanukkah is, so if you were to finish that sentence, what would that is be? We celebrate Hanukkah because... Right, so, so the issue is like this. We were being persecuted. This is, this is actually pre-the-Romans, right? So this is, this is full 200 years before the Romans. 
We were being persecuted by, this, uh, by a station called Greeks, the Seleucid Greeks to be specific. The New York Times had a, had a correction, editorial correction on this. They got the wrong Greeks. They got, they got the Romans. It's the Greeks that were persecuting us at this point in time. And it wasn't just Greeks, it was Jews. Jews were Hellenizing and there was infighting. It was a terrible period of time. And um, we were able to regain sovereignty of the land of Israel to push out our overlords and be able to reclaim the base of Migdash, reinstitute our laws, and be able to live based on our values, not a foreign value system. That was a remarkable victory. And because of that, we celebrate Hanukkah. But the Gemara doesn't emphasize that. The Gemara says the reason why we celebrate it is because when they came back to the base of Migdash, after all was said and done, they didn't have any oil, and because they didn't have any oil, they found this flask, and the flask was only supposed to last for one day, and it lasts for eight days, and so hence we laid light for eight days to commemorate that miracle. And that's why we celebrate Hanukkah. But if we were to play this, the, the following game, let's see what would happen if, without. So, for instance, let's see what would happen if they did not find the, the, the bottle of oil. Right? What would have changed in Jewish destiny? So the answer probably is, well, we'd have another icon for this, uh, this festival called Hanukkah, but we would have still survived, right? So, in, in, in fact, ironically speaking, the Gemara says halakhically, that, that, that if you have a, a whole community who is impure, and the Kalim, the Basin are impure, there's something which is called Tumahutra Bitsibur, that you can light in a state of impurity because most of the community is impure. So technically speaking, they could have even listened in, in impurity. The miracle was, in a, in a certain sense, completely unnecessary. Very beautiful, but unnecessary. Now let's play the game the other way around. Let's say we had not vanquished the Greeks, Greeks, but we ha did have the oil to light for eight days. Well, that would have made very little difference because we wouldn't be here to tell the story. Right? So like, I mean, in, terms of like, in terms of consequence of each part of the miracle, the consequence of surviving and, and in the battle was much more, had much more import than the miracle of the, of the oil. But nonetheless, the focus the Gomorrah seems to say about, the, uh, about Hanukkah, which seems to be what we're doing as the icon of the festival, is the oil, right, and the, and the menorah. So Rahim Shlomo says that's exactly the point. He says, you know, let's say you have a parent who, um, who, who has a child, and, um, and, and the, 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 the child is just a very difficult child. And again and again and again, they, just, they don't listen. They, 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 they go through complicated, complicated stages in their life. So, um, um, and, uh, when the parent, the, the parent has a responsibility to take care of the child. So they have, to pay, they have to make sure that they have food, they have to have clothing, they have to go to school, they have to have school books, all the basic things. But there's different ways that a parent can go about this. So there's a parent who can just do the basics, you know, and I'll do whatever you need. Um, but I'm not going to do anything special because you just betrayed me so many times. You've been so difficult for me. I can't, I'm not going to, you know, it's it, that's it. I'm giving you what you need and that's all, that's all you need. But then there's another parent who says, you know, despite what's, everything that's gone on, despite how difficult it is, I still love you so much that no matter when or what, I'm going to do the extra things. I'm going to take you out of school to go, go for a day and we'll go do a visit somewhere. I'm going to take you on a special trip. I'm going to give you a present in the middle of the week just because. Right? Those things are in a certain sense much less necessary right? in, in terms of the well-being of the child. The child doesn't, doesn't need those presents or those trips. Right? Without them, they would still survive. They have food, they have food to eat, clothes on their back and schools to go to and all the necessary prerequisites of survival. But it's sometimes the extras that show the parent really, really loves the child beyond just the needs. So what Rav Shlomo was saying is, yes, survival from the war was a need. But if Hashem had only provided that, if all he'd given us was, you know, the fact that we survived, then the perspective we may have thought was, well, Hashem is doing this because a parent, so to speak, the, our, our Hashem's responsibility to us, to, in a certain sense, is to let us survive. But does he care about us? Not really. He's just doing this because, you know, he made a covenant with our fathers and, and, and mothers and... And that's why we have to be here today. But he doesn't really care. 
what the, the, the oil is a, is a sign, again, coming back to his notion of, of the kiss, yeah, which is where he's showing us it's not just about the clothes, it's not just about the food, it's not about survival, it's about you. I care about the fact that even you should be able to perform the mirror, to perform the lighting in my temple. You shouldn't even have seven days to go by without doing it properly, without the right oil the right way. So in a certain sense, it's the more inconsequential of the miracles which we celebrate because it, it, it represents the relationship more than the necessary part of the miracle, if we think about that. It shows what's behind it. One example is just, just a powerful example of how this works, because um, we've shifted a little bit here. Up till now, the first two models, the Yosef, the, the fourth bracha of the Berkas Lamozen model was, when you're about to go into a very dark place and you get this unnecessary peace, it shows you the relationship's still here, but it can also be the other way around. Even when you're being given the basics, Right, you're being given the basics, it's the kiss, it's the extra thing which is showing us that it's, we're still valuable. And the example is in Halacha. So the Ramam says in, um, in Hilchus um, Avel, in the end of the, the, the laws of mourning, he talks about the mitzvahs where we're supposed to, imatatia deo, we're supposed to act like the Ribbana Shalom, we're supposed to act like the Almighty. So he gives examples. And he says, like HaKadosh Baruch Hu visits the sick, we should visit the sick. Like by Avram Avinu. Like HaKadosh Baruch Hu buries the dead, so we too should bury the dead. Like HaKadosh Baruch Hu is machnis kala. HaKadosh Baruch Hu marries off those who don't have the wherewithal to marry off their own children. You should do the same thing, right? And you should be menachem avel, a person who's rachman and son in mourning. We should go and, 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 um, and do this. And also to melave orchem, to escort guests. So, and each of these, the Gemara learns out from a particular episode that Hashem did. We should, in the same way, excuse me, we should follow Hashem in the same way. This is what the Rambam says. Now, then the Rambam, this is in Perik Yudalit, then um, Halacha Aleph, in the second Halacha he says, which of these would you think is the most necessary, the highest on the totem pole of needs? So again, just to recap, visiting the sick, burying the dead, visiting the mourner, making a wedding, and escorting guests. Those are the five that he lists. What, is the, what would you think is the most important of all of these? Very probably, right? Because the dead, the dead, you know, there's, they're, they're not able to even fend for themselves, right? So there's certain that's what we call chesed shalimus. The Ramah says a remarkable thing. He says, escorting guests is the most important on the list. Now, when was the last time that you were ever crushed because you weren't escorted out of your house? I mean, you had somebody, somebody invites you over from shul, invites your whole family, and has your five-course meal, wonderful, um, you know, conversation. Everything is, it, it makes you feel great. And then when it comes to the end of it, they, they don't walk you out the Dalit Amos, the four, the four paces that they're supposed to at the end. That really, that really changed your lifestyle? That's going to crush you? Right? Is that, that, that sounds like the most inconsequential. You know, you have a body on the side of the road that can't be buried. Rachman and son. You have, you have a, a person who's sick. There's a person who's in Avelos. There's, there's, there's a young man or, la- or lady who needs, to, who needs to get married. These are all very serious needs, right? So Rav Moshe Eisenman, who, who was a teacher of mine in Erisol many, many years ago, said, said a very interesting thing. He said, perhaps that's exactly the point. When we do chesed, when we do kindness to other people, a lot of times we are also doing it not just for them, but for ourselves, because we naturally need, feel gratified by giving. And therefore, the more we give, the more gratified, gratifying the experience is. So that means to say that sometimes the other person, in a sense, becomes the vehicle towards my gratification. So by my giving to them, therefore, I am actually feeling really good with myself. And so like an experience, like sort of, you know, a, a sort of twisted way of looking at this is, 
is that therefore the bigger the need, the more gratifying it is, right? The more the person is, is in need, the better it is for, for me to help, the, help them out. You, you can think of like, you know, the situation where somebody goes to visit somebody in hospital and they've already returned home because they're well and the person feels upset that they couldn't have been sick just a day or two longer so they could have been there to visit them, right? But that ultimately is saying that the visiting is not for the person in the bed, but rather the person who's coming, right? And that shows you that that, that isn't necessarily about them, it's about us, right? So that, that's, that's, the, that's where the, that this, this perspective sometimes gets, um, gets stinted. So what the Ravizan says, why is the Ramah emphasizing Leviathan's Orachim as squatting guests? Because it's pre- precisely unnecessary. It's the only one of those acts which is not addressing a need. All the other ones are gross needs, extreme needs. When you have somebody over and you've invested a lot of money and time and energy to make sure that they have a wonderful meal and you're there and you entertain them, and then you bring them to the door, by walking them out a few steps, you're saying, I don't need to do this just to make you happy to fill your need. I'm doing this because I actually like you. Because I validate you, your time, your presence. And by validating them as opposed to the need, what the Ramam is saying is that we're, it, we're in a certain sense paradigm shifting the way we conduct ourselves with people. It's a perspective that a human being is an ends rather than a means. Brilliant insight into, in, into the way that, 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 that we live. So if you think about that, that's exactly what the Rahman Shlevitz is saying on the, the macro scale here. When Akash Baruch Hu saves us, that's the need. When he gives us the oil, that's the superfluous. The superfluous validates us, not just the need. So Akash Baruch Hu is saying, I'm giving you the extra to be able to tell you that you matter to me. I'm, before you're going into Godless, I'm going to give you a superfluous, an unnecessary miracle. That they're dead, but you can bury them and they didn't decompose. That's the, that's the extra to show you that I care about you indelibly. There's no way to break that bond because that's, that, that, that's who you are. And, and, and this, is, this is what the relationship is going to be. That's what's carried us through. So this is, this is something, not just Hanukkah, this is every time we bench, we have the opportunity of tapping in to, into this, the, the last miracle, essentially. The last miracle that we experienced as a nation. But that last miracle still keeps us going and hopefully continues the night. Anyways, Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you. Yeah.